0: Well, let's open up our Bibles now to Romans chapter 5 as we continue our way through this glorious epistle. We find ourselves in verse 12 of Romans chapter 5, and as it took us several weeks to get through the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 5, it's going to take us a few weeks to get to this next section of, uh, to get through the next section of Romans chapter 5. Uh, it's, it's an important section in this epistle. Let's read together now, now though, starting in verse 12, and we will read through the end of chapter 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Thank you for this pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, that through your word, by your Spirit speaking, we might hear the voice of our God that We might even be transformed supernaturally by the power of your spirit working through your word into the likeness of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I do pray, Lord, that this morning as your word is proclaimed, that by your spirit, through your word, you would accomplish that which only you can accomplish in causing dead hearts to live and blinded eyes to see. I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart will be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this section that we just read together, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, is really one of the most important sections, not just in Romans, but in our entire Bible. It really is the key to interpreting all of Scripture, really all of human history. If we want to know the answer to why people do bad things. When we look at the world around us and we see the, the horrible things that have done, been done throughout history that are going on in the world right now, we, we could read this passage and find the answer. If we want to know why people can't save themselves through, through the effort of their own will and hard work, all we need to do is read this passage. If we want to know why salvation must be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you read this passage. If we want to understand the doctrine of our union with Christ, if we want to be fully assured of our salvation, we can read this passage. We can understand all of history as we understand this passage because all of history can really be defined in terms of two men. The first man, Adam, and the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who has ever lived throughout all of history is represented by one of these two men. We are either of Adam's race or we are of Christ's race. So as Paul comes into this essential passage in the book of Romans, he has one important thing he wants to drive home to us before he can go any further, and that is this. There is one man, there is one who ruined everything for all the rest of us. Ruined everything for all of humanity before God. One man, the first man, and one action of that man brought ruin on all of us. And Paul needs us to see something. It's that we are inseparable from him in that ruin. We are in him in that ruin, all of humanity. And so now because of that one man, because of his actions, and because we are united to him, Sin and death dominate all humanity. Every single person. We see in this passage that we just read, verse 14, death reigned. Verse 17, death reigned. Verse 21, sin reigned in death. Everyone is united in this. Everyone is united in sin And death, and there's not one single person apart from the Lord Jesus Christ who has ever lived that can separate themselves from the rest of that group of humanity and say, I'm not as bad as they are. I'm not as under the domination of sin and death as they are. We have total solidarity with one another because we have solidarity with Adam. All humanity is united, all humanity dead in sin. All humanity lying in this one massive grave together. So Paul wants us to understand that right from the outset, but he's going somewhere glorious with this. If that, if that grave that we're all lying in is that deep, if it's that wide, that all humanity is lying in it together, inescapably connected In this grave of death, if there's no getting out for us, if death's reign over us is that powerful, that secure, if that grave is is that massive, how much more powerful must be the grace of Jesus Christ that rescued not just one person from that grave, but everyone who would believe in him? That's Paul's big point in this section. The deeper, the wider, the more powerful and pervasive the reign of death is in every single life, the more amazing the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is. This grace that rescues and gives life, not just to one individual, not just to one tribe, not just to one nation, but to all who believe in Christ from every tribe, from every nation, for all of time. And so to to help us Paul's point is to help us understand the glorious reign of Christ in his righteousness and his grace and his power, but to help us understand how glorious this reign of Christ's grace is, we need to be even further sobered by the reality of just how bad our situation was apart from Christ. Now, Paul, of course, spends most of the first three chapters showing us how desperate our situation is, and we get some good news in there, and now we get to chapter 5, and Paul's going to bring us back one more time and remind us of how bad it was. And that's important because we easily forget that. At the moment of our conversion, every one of us is overwhelmed with the weight of sin, or else we don't have true conversion, but... As we go through our lives, it's easy for us to start justifying ourselves and, and reframing ourselves as not that bad, not that death. It's certainly a lot better than these people I'm seeing out here in the world. Paul doesn't want us to get away with that. We need to see just how pervasive death's reign was. Again, not just on me, not just on you, but on all men. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first three verses here, verses 12 through 14. Focusing in on the pervasive nature of the reign of sin and death. And Paul starts in verse 12 but with an absolute avalanche showing us how terrible it is. Look at verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. He opens up here, therefore, just as... Those words just as mean there's a comparison that's gonna be made here. Paul starts a comparison here in verse 12 that he doesn't finish in verse 12. In fact, he's not gonna finish it until verses 18 and 19. But what's this comparison that he's gonna make? Well, we're clued into this with the very first word here, therefore. This word therefore links us back to what he has said previously. In light of what I just said Here's what I now say. So it links us back to the, the verses we, we read and, and looked at last week. Verse 9, we are saved by him, that is Jesus, from the wrath of God. Verse 10, For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It goes on in verse 11, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we get these statements through Jesus, by Jesus. It's in him and through him we receive these things. It's these statements Paul has just made of what are ours through Jesus that introduce now another through him that Paul's going to use as we go on in verse 12. Another person that we come to that we have received some things through as well, the one man Paul calls him through whom sin and death came into the world. And so before he finishes this comparison in verses 18 and 19, Paul's going to show us in verses 12 through 17 exactly what is ours through Adam. He's just talked about all that's ours through Christ, just climbed the mountain peaks of of glory, and now he brings us crashing back down to show us what is ours, what is all of humanity's through Adam? because it's only when we understand that that we can fully appreciate what's ours in Christ. We we could read those things that he just said are ours in Christ and go, yeah, that's good, but but we miss the full weight of it unless we understand exactly where we were for God to bring us to that place. So he says, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so that death spread to all men because all sinned. Now Paul makes it explicit in verse 14, This one man he's talking about is our father, Adam. Sin came into the world through one man. Now, he doesn't mean that sin didn't exist anywhere before the fall of Adam. We know that it did. We know that Satan obviously fell before that, before he could tempt the first man and the first woman to sin. What he means is sin came into the world of men through Adam. It's as if Paul's picturing sin As this living being that is is just looking for access to come into uh, the world of man. And Adam's the gate. Adam's the one that opens the way to him. So keep your finger here in Romans. We're obviously coming back, but turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. So we need to see how this worked, how how this played itself out, what Paul's referring to here. Genesis 2, starting in verse 15. We'll kind of walk through what it is that Scripture reveals to us about sin's entrance into the world. Starting in verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God commands the man. He, he, he gives the law to the man right there in the gospel with this commandment. And this is God's kindness to him. This is God's kindness, not just to the man, not just to Adam, but to all who would come after Adam as well. Here is the God-given means to keep sin out of the world. Adam, here is my commandment. Obey my commandment perfect Adam, sinless Adam, created in the image of God. All he had to do was obey that one command. Not not 11 commands. Not uh, 413 commands as we see in all the Old Testament. No, just one command. And sin stays out of the world. But, But there's a promise associated with this command. What did God promise? In the day you eat of it, you shall what? Surely die. Disobedience to this law, to this command, means certain death, and certain death when? In the day that you eat of it. Certain death that day, that moment. So let's watch this death unfold now as we come into chapter 3 of Romans, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Did God say that? No. He said you can't eat of this tree, and the day you eat of it you'll die. She added in some extra rules on top of that, nor shall you touch it lest you die. What does it mean? She has no idea what she's talking about. She's free to Just add on to what God said. God said this. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay, so just the opposite of what God said. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So in order to get Eve to break God's commandment, the serpent attacks God himself. He attacks the command of God. He attacks the character of God. This is exactly what he is still doing in the world today, attacking the commands of God, attacking the character of God. Verse 6 then of Genesis 3, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. There it is. It's the fall of man when Adam broke the law of God. And what did God say would happen if you did this? You break this command, in that day you will surely die. That's what God said. God wasn't lying. God wasn't being poetic when he said that. It was a promise. It goes on, and we read on in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. And the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death that day meant for Adam a totally new way of seeing the world. Their eyes were opened. He saw things differently after that that bite of the fruit than he did before that bite of the fruit. Death that day meant a new understanding of things. All of a sudden they know that they're naked and that's a problem somehow for them. They had a new knowledge of themselves. Worst of all, death that day meant hiding from God. What a sad and terrible statement we read that that they hid from God. Adam, Adam was dead to God that day. He was not hostile towards God. We see that in the exchange as it goes on, verse 9. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. This, this death that came to Adam, that moment made him afraid of God. He was now hostile towards God. The, the, the dynamic of the relationship had changed. Sinful fear had entered, entered Adam's he was now afraid of God. Verse 11, he said, God speaking, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Well, of course, God knows the answers to all of these questions he's been asking. Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. You hear the hostility here towards God? In Adam's response, you see how this dynamic has changed? The woman you gave me, you want to talk to somebody about this? Talk to her, but more than that, God, talk to yourself. You're the one who did this. What wickedness. That's death. That's death that has come to Adam. It's her fault, but more than that, God, it's actually your fault. We also know that death that day meant a curse on all of creation. And not long after that, death would come physically when one son of Adam in Genesis chapter 4 would murder another son of Adam. And of course, death spiritually entered Adam on that day. Spiritual corruption was in him instantly. It twisted Everything, from the way that he saw the world, from what he knew of himself and knew of the world around him, from his broken relationship with God, sin corrupted him everywhere, every part of him. Death reigned in him from that moment, only capping off its reign in Genesis 5, chapter 5, in his physical death, some 800 years later, but make no mistake, death reigned in him from the moment he broke the commandment of God. Then we read in Genesis chapter 5, this great chapter of death, that death spread to all men through Adam. It didn't just reign in Adam. We read over and over through the generations, in Genesis chapter 5, this repeated phrase, and he died. Sin entered the world through one man. Through sin, death came into the world. And that death spread to all man. Such that, as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones referred to it, the world is now a place of cemeteries. This whole world is, is pockmarked, if we could see through it, with graves all around the world. And everyone who's alive at any given moment is surely going to die one day. And More than that, they too are under the reign of sin and death, even while they yet physically live. What a catastrophe this is. What horror has befallen mankind. No one is excluded from this. The wise were infected with death and will surely die. The foolish were infected with death and will surely die. The rich and the poor were both alike, infected with death and will surely die. The famous and the nameless, the leader and the follower, the noble and the infamous, all infected with death, all will surely die. And only one man and one action was needed for sin's entry into the world. Just, just one man, just Adam, like a gate opened the way for sin to come in. And when sin came in to the world of men, it did not tiptoe. Sin kicked the gate open and stormed in, and sin didn't come alone. Death came too, and death, like sin, spread to all men. Just one sin. From just one man opened the gate for sin and death, and now all mankind, in fact creation itself, is under the reign of sin and death, under the curse of God. Every single human is infected by that. Everybody, dominated by death. In fact, the human race stands doomed. All we have to do is look at the world around us and we see that this is true. Brings us to another startling reality. If you want to turn back to Romans 5 again now. We see in verse 12. He says this, because all sinned. That phrase has caused a lot of theological controversy over the years. Mostly because the literal reading of the phrase that's there in Greek is very confusing in English and doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And so it's often translated the way the ESV does here, because all sinned, because that makes a lot more sense to us in English. Uh, But it's a little bit misleading. Literally what it says is, for that all sinned, or upon which all sinned. That's the literal reading, which is, is a strange turn of phrase to our ears. It's hard for us to understand what it means. If we're going to understand what it means, though, we've got to follow Paul's logical progression as he is laying this out for us. Through one man's disobedience, sin entered the world. And then the next step is, through that sin, death entered the world. And then the progression goes that death spread to all men with the result that all dead men sin. That's Paul's logical progression he's making here. His point here isn't that sinners die, although that's true. His point is dead people sin. That's Paul's point. People who are under the reign of death Spiritually dead people, they only sin. And so this statement is really making a two-fold point. The first is, in Adam's sin, everyone sinned. All men sinned, in Adam's sinned. He is our representation. Notice the language Paul uses, all sinned. Past tense, not, not sin, sinned. It's referring to something that's rooted in past history. All descendants of Adam sinned when Adam sinned. Paul's gonna make this point exclusively in the verses we'll get to next week, verses 15 through 19. It's what David's talking about in Psalm 51, where where we have this beautiful prayer of confession and repentance from David. And David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. It's what David's pointing to when he says that. In Adam, all sinned. Second, though, it's not just that we're implicated in Adam's sin because he's our head, but all men also sin personally. We're, we're, we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. So that's the order here. We are sinners. We're born dead in sin, under the reign of sin and death, and so we sin. And so there's this twofold thing going on. We're implicated in Adam's sin And then we personally sin because dead people only ever sin. Paul confirms that for us in Ephesians chapter 2, such a well known passage, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, in which you once lived. You, You lived this way, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's what it looks like to be dead men. That's what Paul means when he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's what David means when he says, I was brought forth in iniquity from my mother's womb. Means living in sin, living to sin, bound by sin, dominated by sin, under the judgment of condemnation from a holy God. This is the state of all humanity. Do you look at the world and you think, how can people just not even be reasonable? It's because of this. Sin has penetrated, corrupted the whole of man's being. The body, the mind, the will, the heart are all twisted by sin to such a devastating degree that people are capable of anything. The worst things you could possibly imagine. People are not only capable of it, they do it. Here's the scary thing. Apart from the transforming grace of the Spirit of God, we ourselves are capable of anything. Any horrifying sin. Humanity at its heart is hostile towards God. We are not born neutral. We are not born basically good. We are born dead in sin, bound by sin and death, hostile towards God. Now, we live in a culture that hates that with all of its might. It hates that truth. Even in much of the church, you're not allowed to even say this truth. They reject it. We have a culture that has such a profoundly shallow understanding of the holiness of God. Such a shallow understanding of the depravity of our own hearts. Our God is very little And we are very good. So anything that contradicts that, we're going to do exactly what the serpent did. We're going to do exactly what our first father Adam did when confronted with his sin. We're going to point our finger right in God's face and tell him how he's wrong. But If we understand biblically, if we see things in light of reality, we would see that God is so transcendently holy we can't even begin to compre- comprehend his holiness. We can't even begin to wrap our minds around his perfection and his glory and his purity and his righteousness and his justice. And we'll see of ourselves that we fall so far short of his holiness. Our hostility towards him. Our bondage to sin, that we are much more wretched than we could ever wrap our minds around. We are much more wretched than we could possibly understand. What it means for us, if we understand what God's Word reveals to us about the nature of God's holiness and about the nature of our own sin and rebellion, is that there is no possibility of salvation within ourselves. Salvation, as we have seen repeatedly in the book of Romans, is always a work of God's grace from the very beginning to the very end. And so we need to understand this. We are all inseparably tied together, all of humanity in sin, in this reign of death, in this one man, Adam. And Paul says, this reign of death is not dependent on the law whatsoever. Look at verse 13. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Okay, that word for, it means there's an explanation that's coming here. This explanation is going to undermine any attempts to argue against what Paul has been saying. The point Paul's going to make in verses 13 and 14 is, death was reigning over all men no matter where those men were. No matter what time they lived or what place they lived. In other words, death wasn't just reigning over This select group of people who had had the the law of God revealed to them, it was reigning over all humanity. No matter what kind of sin was going on, with or without conscious knowledge of the law of God, death was reigning over everyone, everywhere, all the time. Even before the law was given through Moses. So Paul makes this statement, sin is not counted where there is no law. What does that mean? Well, what it doesn't mean is that sin isn't sinful unless there's a law there to tell you that it's sinful. That is not what Paul's saying whatsoever. It means sin is not counted by us to be as sinful as it really is unless we have the law. We give ourselves a pass. We think we're basically okay. We're not really that bad. Paul's going to develop that thought more fully in chapter 7 what he's telling us is we need the law to help us see how utterly sinful sin really is. Those who were sinning apart from the law were blind to just how wicked they really were. And What the law does is open our eyes to see just how depraved we are, just how rebellious we are. Paul says that doesn't diminish death's reign whatsoever. That ignorance... That, that lying to yourself, deceiving yourself into thinking you're not as bad as you really are, it doesn't diminish death's reign whatsoever. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. In other words, here, here's, here's Adam who, who defies a direct command from the Lord God and death came in and death reigned over him and all who would come after him. But Paul says, even those who didn't know any direct commands from God are still dominated by death. It still reigns over them. They don't need Adam's law in order for death to reign. Death didn't need the law of Moses in order to reign. Death doesn't even need the law of Christ in the New Testament in order to reign. All of humanity, whether they know it or not, is in total solidarity with Adam, even the ones who don't know who Adam is and have never heard his name. That's what Paul's saying. His sin and death becomes everyone's sin and death. And the presence or absence of the law has absolutely no effect on that. Death reigns wherever man is because all of mankind is united in Adam. And because we are united in Adam, because we are born under the the reign of death and under sin, because we are, are dead men spiritually, then we all actively sin on top of that. This is such horrible news. This is the worst possible news. Universal death. Universal condemnation. Universal bondage to sin under the reign of death, and if that were the only news we had, there would be no reason for us to do anything but to despair. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die and face that judgment. The problem of our sin is much bigger than we could possibly comprehend, but friends, that's not the end of the story. There's hope here. There's such hope. Look at the end of verse 14. Paul just gives us a little glimpse of it before spelling it out. Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Here here it is. Paul's introducing this contrast that he's drawing out and what a glorious contrast it is. What a beautiful contrast it is. Adam, Paul says, was a type. That is, he was an example. He was a, a pattern. He was a, a foreshadowing of something else. God intended Adam to be one who pointed to Christ. In reality, here, Adam is the type, and Christ is what is called the anti type. Biblical typology the anti type is always greater than the type. There's an increase, there's a heightening, there's a glorification and exaltation. What Paul is going to show us here as he puts forward Adam as the type, Christ as the anti-type, is that Christ is superior to Adam in every possible way. What he has done is more powerful than what Adam has done. What Adam did was so powerful that all mankind is born in Adam under the reign of death, under the reign of sin, under condemnation from God, born dead and so actively sinning because that's just who we are, twisted up by our nature. And Paul's going to show us, oh, what Christ has done is so very much more powerful than that. This comparison is at the very heart of what Paul is saying to us in this passage. That even as Adam's sin was imputed to, credited to all men, because he's our representative which resulted in death, so too Christ's righteousness is imputed to, credited to all who believe in him because he represents all believers in righteousness resulting in life. So Adam and his one act of sin in the garden created a solidarity of all people Under the reign of death, but Jesus, in his one act of obedience on the cross, created a solidarity with his righteous people. Paul's gonna draw that out for us as we'll look at it over the next few weeks, but the big question we have to ask ourselves when we see this, when we see the catastrophe of what it means to be in Adam compared with the glory of what it means to be in Christ, the question we must ask ourselves is, to whom do you belong? Are you in Adam? Or are you in Christ? Friends, as bad as that bad news is, the good news is so much better. If you are in Christ, you are robed in his righteousness. This depravity that Paul has explained in the first three chapters of Romans, that Paul has explained now in these first couple verses that we've been looking at this morning, this depravity, if you are in Christ, that's not you. That's who you were. But you've been made alive. You've been rescued. You've been robed in the righteousness of Christ himself. You have been given eternal standing before the Father, the righteous and holy and pure and perfect and just judge of the universe. When you stand before him one day, it will not be the way I was told it would be when I was in youth group. It'll be as if a giant screen is there before you. And won't you feel shame when people see the sin that you've walked in now, young 15-year-old? No, 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 no. You will stand before him in Christ, robed in his righteousness. There will be no guilt. There will be no shame. There will be no condemnation. There will be no wrath. There will be rejoicing. There will be welcoming. There will be celebration. I don't just mean from the angels, although that's awesome. The Father himself will welcome you with rejoicing. You're standing with him. Your salvation is secure because as Jesus lives, you live. Oh, the promise couldn't be any sweeter. The salvation couldn't be any more powerful. What a glorious salvation. But friend, it's only if you're in Christ. If you're an Adam, you remain under the reign of sin and death. I plead with you this morning to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn to Christ, to to run to Jesus, to trust in him. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your ability to do better and work harder. Stop living for yourself as if you know what's better for you than the one who created you and sustains you. Stop living in this rebellion against God that we see modeled in Satan and then in Adam. Come to him, trust in him, and receive from him the abundance of grace that he offers you. We ought to see the horrors of those who are in Adam. We should not minimize that. We should not try to shield people from that. We have to see it because, oh, when we see that, how, how beautiful is the salvation? How glorious is the salvation? How powerful is the salvation? How gracious is this salvation? It causes us to, to worship God, to rejoice in Him. And you, too, can rejoice in this eternal life if you'll come to Him. So Christians... Meditate on who you were, on what Christ has done for you, on what his promises are for all who are in him. Let us all look to him, the author, the finisher of our salvation. Amen? Let's stand up together. Almighty God, we... Stand in awe of you, of your great salvation. Lord, as we hear these words from our brother Paul and we think about the plight of all mankind, the rebellion, the sin, the reign of death, we marvel that you would make a way for us that you would make a way of salvation, that that all who trust in Christ would be robed in his righteousness by faith, that we would look to you, the almighty, holy God, and we would call you our Father. Lord, how kind you are to us. Your grace, so measureless that you have poured out on us. Lord, we rejoice in you. We rejoice in the gospel of your salvation. I pray, Lord, that... You would cause us to live every moment in light of this gospel. Let this, let this be the eyes that we see the world through. We would never cease in our thankfulness. We would never cease in our praise. We would never cease in our worship, Lord, that it would produce in us a humility that comes from knowing that we're not saved by our own righteousness or our own worth, but only because of the love and grace of our God that we would be moved with compassion for a world who is under the reign and domination of death, that we wouldn't shake our fingers at our television screens or at those in our community as if we're somehow better than them, but instead, Lord, moved with the same compassion that we saw modeled in Christ, that we would boldly, yes, but in love speak the truth. Proclaim this gracious gospel to a world that is dying and desperate. We pray, Lord, that you would use us to accomplish your kingdom purposes. Cause us to be faithful, cause us to be strong. Cause us to be unwavering, but Lord, let the joy of the Lord be our strength, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.